Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would truly speak through your words to our hearts, that you would test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity, that you would speak today not only in this church but in all that faithfully proclaim your word, that you would speak till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are drawing near to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and the main message of this sermon that Jesus has been preaching has been this, do not be like them. Do not be like the world. Do not be like the Pharisees, the religious pretenders. The whole sermon is meant to teach us what it actually means to follow him, to be distinctly in his kingdom, to be Christians. But let's get more specific. I want to do a fast-paced survey of all that Jesus has said. Just take this in. He begins with our character. If we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what he says of us. We must believe that we are poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, and we must mourn over that. We're to be meek humble, no matter the circumstance. We're to crave righteousness, not just being religious. We're to be merciful because we've been shown mercy. We're to be pure in heart. We are to live as peacemakers, to live at peace with others. We're, we're to rejoice in the pain of of persecution. We are to be light in the midst of spiritual darkness. We are to be salt in the midst of spiritual decay and blandness. Christians are to care about the law and obey it because Jesus came to fulfill it. And the law goes deep, so we don't just avoid murder, but the hate behind it. We don't just avoid physical adultery, but the lust behind it. We don't take marriage lightly because God doesn't take marriage lightly. We're to say what we mean 
and mean what we say and do what we say we'll do. We're not to retaliate when we're insulted. We're to freely give up our rights in order to love other people, even enemies, especially enemies. As Christians, we're not to make a show of spiritual disciplines, whether it's praying or fasting or giving or any other discipline. And we don't live to pursue the world's treasures because we're citizens of heaven. Our treasure is in heaven, so we focus our eyes on Jesus and not on ourselves. We serve God and not money. And because our lives aren't focused in this world, and because we trust our Heavenly Father to care for us, we don't worry. We don't tie ourselves up in knots of anxiety. Instead, we use that energy to seek His kingdom and His righteousness, primarily in our own lives, but also helping others to do the same, leaving the final judgment of all human beings to God alone. Well, how's that sound? Pretty easy, right? I mean, like that is your, if you're a believer in Jesus, that is your to be and to do list every single day. All of it, every day. Seem pretty doable? Seem like you got this? I mean, there's no way. This is not just difficult. This is impossible. It's overwhelming. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the standard by which we are confronted is that found in the Sermon on the Mount. And by it, we are all crushed to the ground and made to realize our utter helplessness and our desperate need of grace. And it's there with that crushing feeling on hearing the call of Jesus and knowing that it is impossible, it is there on our knees that Jesus' words here come to us and give us hope and help. Isn't that what you want? Don't you want to obey Jesus? If you're a Christian, I can presume the answer. The answer is yes, of course you do. How are you to do it? Well, we're going to begin where this text begins. And that is that Jesus tells us to pray. To pray. Living out the Sermon on the Mount begins with prayer. In fact, prayer is where all Christian living begins. Of course, we must do Exert our wills, be determined, not give up, give it all we have, make plans to serve, make plans to grow, make plans to obey. But the Christian life doesn't begin with us and our plans. It doesn't begin with us at all. It begins with God. It begins with His power, His strength, His help. That's the only way. We all look and we say, I turn my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. And God says, this whole thing won't be by might or by power, but by His Spirit. You see, I think actually we have a pronoun problem in much of the Christian life. 
We have a pronoun problem. The Christian life, the key pronoun in the Christian life is not I. It is he. It is not me. It is him. But you see, as you go through the whole of the Bible, and as you walk through the biography of your own life, you'll find that the key problem that we have is this pronoun problem. We tend to focus on I and me, me, myself, and I, all three, the holy trinity of selfishness. We tend to move ourselves to the middle. We tend to turn our eyes from the cross to the mirror. One of the places we see that today is in the great and pervasive emphasis in the Christian culture at large on the notion of our identity in Christ. Now, this is going to be a rabbit trail, but it's a planned rabbit trail, so it's more like a rabbit hunt than a trail. A rabbit trail you wander off on. A rabbit hunt, you got something you're going after. All right? Now, certainly, the Bible speaks with identity language. It calls us all sorts of things. But as I see it, there are three significant problems with the way that this identity language is both chosen and used today. The first problem is a cherry-picking problem. When our identity in Christ is talked about, when who the Christian is is spoken of, Those who are writing or speaking tend to find images that might make one feel more positive, right? Just go through the chapter titles of different books. Child of God, Overcomer, Saint, Chosen, Heir. And they're all wonderfully true. But you know what you typically don't find there? Servant of all. Slave of righteousness, poor in spirit, chief of sinners. That's a problem. The second problem, as I see it, is an interpretation problem. That when we come to these different texts where, our, where identity language is used, um, It's interpreted wrongly. The context is typically ignored, and the language itself is pulled out and highlighted so that it becomes about us and our value and our status and our worth. However, in each case, if you were to read the whole of the Bible and underline, and you were to look at where these things are said, you will find that in the context, they're said for one of two reasons. One is to turn our eyes to the Lord, and the other is to set our minds on how to live. So, for example, in 1 John chapter 3, John writes, See what manner of love is this, that we should be called children of God. You know that verse? It's a wonderful verse. Are we children of God? Absolutely we are. Did John write that so we just ponder our childrenness? No, he even says, see what manner of love 
The focus of us being children isn't on us at all. The focus of us being children is to see what manner of love it took to make us God's children. And then two verses later, he says, those who hope in him, these children, they purify themselves as he is pure. So what is that identity language there for? It's there to point us to the Lord and his love, to revel in him and to purify ourselves how to live. It's, it's an interpretation problem. The third problem is a theological problem. I mean, here's the facts. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. Deny ourselves. Identity language and I, those who write such things and say such things are typically asking us to look at ourselves. Jesus says, deny ourselves. That emphasis wrongly tells us to look at ourselves. Apart from that, what is the aim of the entire Bible? What is the aim of all that God has said? What is the aim of your salvation? It is the glory of God. You know where this whole thing's going? In the midst of the turmoil and war in Eastern Europe, you know where we're all going? The people of God around the throne of God singing the praise of God. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb on His throne. Friends, that's where the whole Bible's going. If that's what it's going to be like that day, you know what I'm supposed to do this day? Live like that. It's been well said that there aren't going to be any selfies in heaven. You're not going to want to be in the picture. You and I are going to be awestruck with the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, when people tell you that the key to your hope, the key to your peace, the key to living for Jesus is to think about who you are rather than to think about who God is, rather than to think about who Christ is. No matter who wrote that song, no matter who preached that sermon, no matter who wrote that book, voices that may be reliable in a bunch of other stuff, if they start saying that, the big, giant red flag should go up in your heart. Because, friends, it's everywhere. So keep that big red flag handy. Because the greatest motivation to live for Jesus is not you. And it's not me. It's Jesus. He's the treasure that we'd run away and sell everything to go and buy the field where he's hidden. He's the pearl we'd go and sell everything to go and get. Rabbit hunt over. But the concern with the identity language is actually the same concern that I have for many who seek to try and live the Christian life. It is this pronoun problem. It is the focus on me and I. You see, when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what we shouldn't be saying is, 
I got this. I'm an overcomer. I'm a child of God. No, actually, I think when we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're meant to feel weak and to very acutely know our need for the Lord. You see, I think when the Christian comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they should feel the way Jesus described us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Poor in spirit. And that's why the Christian prays. Because in prayer, we who are poor in spirit have access to the riches of mercy and strength and grace and help from the Lord. We are not to muster it up. We are to call out for it. I'll read it again, beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, most recently in the context of judging others, but in the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount. But it's also the way we ought to pray in all of life. When we see what is happening in the world, this is the way we ought to pray. When we see what's happening in our lives, this is the way we ought to pray. Ask, seek, knock. I just want to mention two aspects of this prayer that Jesus talks about. First, we are to pray with persistence. Jesus doesn't just say ask, does he? He says ask, seek, knock. There's a kind of growing urgency there. And if you are a mom and you have gotten to the toddler age or you remember the toddler age, you know what it is like for one to be persistent, right? Because Toddlers instinctively persist in their requests. They begin by asking, don't they? From the other room, what do you hear? Mommy, 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 etc. And then after, after, you know, 15, 20 seconds of not being answered, they go from asking to seeking, don't they? They get up. They don't stop asking. Now they're walking around every room in the house. Mommy, mom, they walk right past dad. Mommy, 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 mommy. And then when they ask and they seek, you know what they go to next? Knocking. They'll knock on bedroom doors. They'll knock on bathroom doors. They'll stick their little fingers underneath the door thinking that that will help them get what they're asking for. And Jesus looks at you and looks at me and says, stick your fingers under the door of heaven and don't give up. The language is, it's a command, but it's present tense. It's ongoing. It's keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking until when. There is no when. You keep on. 
you keep on. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a couple of parables that illustrate this persistence. One is in uh, Luke 11 and one is in Luke 18. So essentially, Jesus says, imagine that you have guests coming over and you have nothing to feed them, which in that culture would bring great shame on your household to not be a good host and show hospitality. So you go to your neighbor and you knock and he's already in bed, but you don't care. You start yelling. You start. You go to the window and press your face up against the window. And you're not going to let him rest until he gets up and gives you a couple of sandwiches for the people who are staying with you. And then in Luke 18, Jesus says, Now imagine you're a widow who needs justice from a judge who doesn't want to get it, who doesn't want to give it. You keep going to him. Pounding on his doors, these incessant pleas, send him email after email, letter after letter, phone call after phone call, show up at his chambers, text him, do whatever you have to do. Persist like that. Now, Jesus does not tell us to persist because God is reluctant or God needs convincing. Jesus needs, wants us to be persistent because persistent actually reminds us of our neediness. That this isn't just a one-time thing that I can't just snap my fingers and God hops too. That I'm actually dependent on him. My neediness isn't a one-time thing. It's not a short-term thing. It's an every moment of every day thing. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. That's persistence. In other words, don't settle for a New Year's resolution prayer life where you start out with great energy thinking, oh, this is, everything's going to be different now. I just heard a sermon on Matthew 7, 7 to 12. And you start out with great excitement and urgency. But what happens? Excitement wanes. And the urgency you once felt is not there. And prayer Real prayer, persistent prayer becomes something akin to going to the gym. It's something you tried, but you gave up. Friend, have you given up? Have you stopped persisting? Have you thrown in the towel on going to God's throne of grace? Have you been praying and you think, I think I've prayed long enough about this? Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. But my child is 43 now. I don't know that she'll ever turn back. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. But everything seems so hopeless. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Persist, persist. Bang on the windows of heaven and cry out all night long. Refuse to give up. Be like Jacob. I will not let you go until you bless me. But also, we don't just pray with persistence, we pray with faith. 
We pray with faith. When we pray, we, have, we must have confidence. The Bible tells us we can have confidence. It is not confidence in ourselves that we have. It is confidence in God as we go to God in prayer. And you see, nothing builds our confidence in prayer like knowing that God will hear us and answer us. And so that's what Jesus says. Notice the promises attached to these commands. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. It is as if Jesus on the negative side would say, You do not have, because you do not ask. Not really. Not with this kind of faith. And notice he says, he doesn't say that we might receive. Isn't that great? He doesn't say we might find or it could possibly be open to you. He says it will. We will find. We will receive. It will be opened. This is a matter of faith. We don't just pray persistently. The question is, do we pray with faith? Do you believe that God hears you? That God answers It actually will change the way you pray if you believe that. Do you believe that prayer is not an exercise in futility? It is not an empty ritual. Do you believe, James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working? In response to Moses' prayer, God spared his people from judgment. In response to Joshua's prayer, God made the sun stand still so they could win the battle. In response to Gideon's prayer, God gave him assurance of his presence and of victory. In response to David's prayer of confession, God grants forgiveness full and free. In response to Hezekiah's prayer, God graciously heals the king and extends his life. It would just be a wonderful thing over and over again. In fact, with Hezekiah, uh, it's interesting. God says, basically, that he's going to extend his life. And then after Hezekiah prays, this is what God says through the prophet. I can't remember if it's in uh, the king's account or if it's in Isaiah. But he's, I think it's in Isaiah. Because God says, because you prayed. God had already determined he was going to extend his life. He was going to heal him. But then he says, because you prayed. In other words, God uses prayer to move his purposes forward in the world. Do you want to see God's purposes move forward in the world? That's not a rhetorical question. Do you want to see God's purposes go forward in the world? Are you praying? Because if you're just sitting back and you just say that all the time, that God's purposes are going to come out, this isn't how God actually intends his purposes to unfold. The unfolding, in part, comes through the praying. And so we pray with faith. We come to the same God that all those people came to. Hannah prayed. What happened? God opened her womb. We come to this same God. And Jesus gives us an illustration to help strengthen this faith, right? In verses 9 to 11, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So you see, if a child asks for what is truly needed, what is really good, what will serve them well, bread, fish, even us evil, sinful, fallen fathers will give it. And on the flip side, listen, even even sinful, fallen fathers, if a child comes and says, uh, Dad, can, can I eat rocks for dinner tonight? We'll say no. But here's some bread. Why? Because we know what's best. Just because the child says please doesn't mean they get to eat rocks for dinner. We know. And so we do what's best. And actually the same is true for God in an even greater way. And the the fact is, is that we as earthly fathers, if you ask any father who's far enough along in the journey as being a father, they'll be able to tell you about times maybe they granted a request or denied a request and then later went back and said, I think I was wrong about that one. You ever been there? Well, maybe it's just me. I've been there. (laughs) Do you know who's never been there? Your heavenly father. The requests he grants and the requests he denies, he is perfect in all of them. He will not fail to accomplish his purposes. He will not fail to love you. He will not fail to be with you. So go to him with faith. Don't go thinking of God as an obedient genie. Think of God as a heavenly father. That that he knows what's best. He gives what's best. Even when we don't know why he thinks this answer to that prayer is best, we can know he will not fail to do good. He will not fail to love us. He will not fail to carry us to the end, even when we can't see all that he's doing in the minutiae of the details of life. And we get wrapped up in a whole bunch of other things when we forget that, when we think that all we need to see God's hand perfectly in every moment of every day. What we need to do is trust God when what we see doesn't make sense. That's what it means to walk by faith, not by sight. Are there specific things that we can pray for, things that we know are good, things? Well, of course. Let me read you a list. Are you ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray for God's glory, that his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. Pray for God's help for provision, for forgiveness, for protection from the evil one. But don't just pray like that. Pray like that with faith. 
knowing that God will answer. And then having told us to pray, Jesus says we don't just pray in response to his sermon. We don't just pray. We must obey. Now this will come back again next week as Jesus closes out this sermon, as we walk through the last part of this sermon. But here we get a taste. It's right here in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, it seems like it couldn't possibly be connected here, but just hang on. The first word in the verse is so, which is a therefore kind of word, which means that there is some kind of connection here between this and what has come before. Jesus has just shown us the kind of kindness and love and mercy our Father shows as He answers prayer. But we are not just to enjoy that. We are to imitate that. We imitate that kind of care and love and forgiveness and generosity and mercy in relationship to others. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we are to be imitators of God. What does that look like? Well, he tells us it looks like doing good to others the way that we'd want good done to us. We know it as the golden rule. So forgive, be kind, show mercy, be generous in the same way that we'd want others to do those things for us. Now, but friends, do you know that so often we take the golden rule and we twist it so that it becomes fool's gold? Rather than the words making a demand on us, We twist them to make demands on others. So Jesus says, treat others the way you'd want to be treated. But too often we say, treat me the way I want to be treated. You see how that's twisted? That's pyrite right there. That's fool's gold. Because it sounds so good. Because you need to bend to me. You need to treat me the way I want to be treated. And such is the demand in so many corners of our society today, isn't it? But it's not just out there. It came to church with some of us today. That same kind of fool's gold. We've got it in our pocket and we're ready to play it at any moment. I mean, just think carefully about what Jesus says here. Is Jesus really telling his disciples to spend their time concerned with how other people are treating them? That that is what is to take up their time? That is what they're to give their energy to? No, 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 no. Jesus, remember back in chapter 5, remember what Jesus has said about other people and how they'll, how they'll treat them? They will revile you. They will persecute you. They will say all kinds of things that are false just to hurt you. And what are they to do in response? Are they to write in their diary, Dear diary, they were very mean to me today. No. What are they to do? Rejoice. Why? Because their reward is in heaven, not in the minds and hearts of other people. 
If all you want is to be liked and have a good opinion formed about you by other people, well, then you have your reward in them. And it's fool's gold. It's a plastic treasure. No, we are to be concerned not with receiving treatment, but giving it. We are only to think, how would I want someone to treat me? That is not then set up as martial law, right? This is the law by which I will judge you. No, 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 no. This is the way in which I will treat you. What would I, how would I want to be treated? With what kind of, what kind of mercy would I want to be shown in this situation? How, how quick would I want another to be to forgiveness if I had sinned in that way? What kind of generosity would I want to be shown if I was in that place in life? Well, that's what I'll do then. You see the difference? It's a huge difference. And that statement, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them, in a sense, that summarizes everything Jesus has told us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's actually bigger than that, isn't it? Because notice what Jesus says at the end of the verse. This is the law and prophets. This golden rule summarizes the entire Old Testament, all that the Old Testament would tell us about how we are in relationship to other people. It is summed up in this. In fact, it's just another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And we hear all of this. We take in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and as we do, these words help us. What are, we to, what are we to do, Jesus, now that you have said all of this? Well, we are to pray because we can't do any of this on our own. And we are to obey because we can't ignore any of it. The call to follow Jesus is high. It is impossible to repeat what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the standard by which we are confronted is that found in the Sermon on the Mount, and by it we are all crushed to the ground and made to realize how utterly, our utter helplessness and our desperate need of grace. But here's the good news, friends. The one, the one who is crushing us with the teaching came to be crushed so we could be lifted up. The one who is teaching us these impossible things came to give us the grace needed to be forgiven when we fail and to live for him. He came to fulfill the law's demands in his life. He came to fulfill the judgment of the law in his death, not because he deserved judgment, but because he took it in our place. And because of that grace, all who come, all who come to him with persistence. You know that wonderful, that wonderful picture of the woman with the issue of blood, right, in, in the Gospels. And what does she do to get to Jesus? She presses through the whole crowd. Nothing's going to keep her from getting to Jesus. I will not let you go, in essence, until you bless me. 
And all who come to Jesus, who won't let anything, not their sin, not their family, not a relationship, not a friendship, not a career, not nothing will keep me from getting to Jesus. Those who come to him with that kind of persistence. Those who come to him with faith that knows that he has done it all. Faith, trusting his promise that we will be forgiven when we come to him. That he will in no way turn anyone out. The faith that comes that way find salvation. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every Christian in this room and every Christian around the world can testify that God keeps that promise. So you can come to him and find acceptance with God, forgiveness of your sin, eternal life in Christ, hope in heaven. You can, by his grace, will you. Father, we bow before you, thankful that in the midst of a sermon that shows us just how poor in spirit we truly are, that you have given us access to the riches of your mercy and strength through prayer, that we might obey you. Lord, I pray that we as a church will be persistent in our praying, that we will be filled with faith in our praying, that we will see and testify to the fact that you hear and answer prayer over and over again. And I pray for those who don't know the Lord Jesus. Oh God, would you give them grace so that nothing would keep them from coming. That they would press through everything else to get to Jesus. And that they would come in faith trusting him alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.